Good morning. It's good to see you. And uh, this is this is you know an amazing, amazing weekend for me. The Buckeyes pulled it off yesterday. Don't you wish you'd have bought tickets to that one? The Cowboys beat the Giants last weekend. That's I'm talking good things, don't owe it me. And my boy Jeff Gordon made it into the chase by one point. How come y'all aren't as enthused as I am about this stuff? Here's why. You have the wrong worldview. All right. See, if you had a Dallas worldview, it would all be different. But here's the thing. Last week we started talking about worldviews. There's an outline in your worship folder. We started talking about worldviews. It's exactly what we just talked about. Why did more people cheer for the Buckeyes just now than the Cowboys or Jeff Gordon? Because there are more of us in this room with that. I don't say you're right or anything like that. Okay. Because <laughs> more of us have that. That's, that's how we view things, right? That's, that's our focus and our opinion and what we, you know, that's just how we think. And more of us think that way than think the otherwise. If I was in Dallas this morning speaking, I'd have gotten a bigger cheer on the second one. And if I was in North Carolina, I'd have gotten a bigger cheer on the third one. See, worldviews, as we learned last week, and by definition, a worldview is a set of presuppositions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. It's a set of presuppositions which we hold that tell us how to look at things. Now, Pastor Steve last week said that we would look at things through a certain kind of lenses, and so he thought it would be cool if all of us speaking through this series used his cool set of glasses from last week that, you know, blink, and I don't even know how to work them, so see, that shows how cool I am, okay? But then I realized, at one point in my life, I had cooler glasses than this, so I went back and got a picture of me from 1985... Yeah. Now, believe it or not, these are the, this is when New Life first started, and we sent out these pictures thinking people would come to our church because of these pictures. I don't know what we, were, <laughs> what we were thinking, but are those not the coolest? You know, you can write down, I have now, I have now seen cool. I have come in contact with cool. I realized I've gained an entire person since those pictures <laughs> were taken 27 years ago. All right. See, if you pick on yourself, nobody can pick on you. All right. So, it's a set of presuppositions. It's a set of lenses that we look at life through. So today we're going to be looking at one of those worldviews. It's the worldview called naturalism. Naturalism is a philosophy that was born in the 18th century, it came of age in the 19th century, and it grew to maturity in the 20th and still is in the 21st century. It is the philosophy that dominates our universities and our colleges and our high schools, and it provides the framework today for most scientific study. It is everywhere. Parents, if you're wondering what you're reading in your, student, your children's high school textbooks, 
it is probably, to some extent, naturalism. Because it is the prominent philosophy in the Western world today. Naturalism says this, nature is all there is. Nature is all there is. It affirms and celebrates the fact that nature is enough. It believes that reason is the sole criterion for truth. Reason is truth. It has been defined this way, an overarching cognitive, ethical, and existential framework that serves the same function as a supernatural worldview, but without trafficking in illusions. In other words, a naturalist would say to you as a Christian, well, our worldview is the same, only I don't believe in the silly Bible stories. It serves the same function, but it doesn't traffic in the illusions of Scripture. One naturalist has put it this way, naturalism as a metaphysical thesis is driven by a desire for a clear, reliable account of reality and how it works, and a desire that generates an unflinching commitment to objectivity and explanatory transparency. Well, he has a very high view of naturalism, and I say we take him up on it. That we look at naturalism today with a commitment to objectivity and transparency. That we want to look at it to see if it is a reliable account of reality. Of how the universe works. So much like Pastor Steve did last week, we are going to do this message in two parts. The first will be an examination of, remember the eight questions of what a worldview seeks to answer. Important questions that worldviews seek to answer. And then I want to take some time and look at a passage in Matthew and see how we find the perspective of naturalism even in Scripture. So let's first look at these important questions that worldviews try to answer. The first question is this. What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of reality? A naturalist would say that matter exists eternally and it's all there is. Matter is all there is, and it has existed eternally. Naturalism does not discuss the origin of the matter, but it simply trusts that it's always been there. I think we call that faith. It just trusts that that matter has always been there. There is no timeline. A naturalist would, be, would not be able to say, here's when... History began. Here's when natural history began. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't even really know how it started. We just know that it's there, and we trust that it's always been there. That is the nature of reality. Second question, how did it all get here? Well, the naturalist would define it this way. The cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. In other words, it got here because of cause and effect within itself. It is a closed system, meaning nothing can impact it from outside of itself. The cosmos is affected by itself. The cause and effect is within itself. Now, if that's starting to feel circular to you, you're probably correct. The universe, a naturalist would say, is simply here because it is. It is not open to reordering for outside. It only affects itself because it's a closed system. 
Nothing from outside affects the universe. And like many philosophical streams, naturalists don't always agree on everything, much like the reason there's 900 versions of Baptist. Okay? Naturalists do not agree on everything. For instance, some naturalists would not describe themselves as atheists. Now, most naturalists would, but some would not. But here's the reason that some would not. Because they hold open the possibility of a creator. That science has not proved a creator yet, but there's the possibility that science will. And so they hold that open. That's how we all got here. And how it all got here, we don't know, a naturalist would say. We just know that it happened within this closed system of cause and effect, but that's all we know. Question number three, is there a God? Well, guess what the answer is? No. No in function, but again, some naturalists would say that there could be a God or creator. But in general, a naturalist would say that no, there is not a God. The biggest objection to God or a creator is that this would be an outside effect, outside of the natural. See, a naturalist would say, I, we don't believe in the supernatural, therefore, we, can't believe, we would not believe, or do we choose to believe, that there is something outside of this natural system of nature that would impact it. The Humanist Manifesto II, written in 1973, said this, we find insufficient evidence for the belief in the existence of a supernatural. Well, I'm glad they cleared that up for us. We find insufficient evidence for the belief in the existence of a supernatural. And they went on to say that if God is just the creator, his existence is of little practical value anyway. So the answer is there a God, a naturalist, most of them, would say no. Because there is no practical evidence in a scientific form to prove it. Number four, fourth question, what is the nature of man? Naturalists would say that man is the highest animal. He is a complex machine. And it is up to him then to work out his special place in nature. Man is a complex machine. He's the highest of all the animals. We have somehow risen to the top of the food chain. Survival of the fittest. And so now it is up to us to find our special place in nature. But what does a naturalist do with personality? As you were shaking hands a few minutes ago, you noticed that the people around you were not just like you. Not only do they not look like you, but they all have different personalities. Some are huggers, some are fist bumpers. You know, you have all these different personalities. Some of you just go, oh, hey, nice to see you. Okay? That's personality. What does a naturalist do with personality? Well, a naturalist would say that personality is simply an interrelation of chemical and physical properties. But they would add this phrase, which we do not yet fully understand. So, you see, when a naturalist comes up against something they don't understand or doesn't fit their worldview and fit this philosophy, they simply say, we haven't figured it out yet. And they would do that with personalities. 
So when somebody's bothering you next week, you can say, your interrelation of chemical and physical properties is driving me crazy. <laughs> the nature of man. See, in, in naturalism, man is simply a part of the cosmos. And the cosmos is made up of one substance, very important to naturalists, called matter. That's what you are. You're just part of that. But, a naturalist would say, he is unique among the animals. They would acknowledge that man is capable of thought and speech and cumulative cultural and tradition. He has a moral capacity and he has a unique method of evolution. That man has, gotten, has proceeded through evolution in a different way than other animals. But he is still just matter. So I have this question. So man is matter. And yet he matters. But only in that he is better matter than the other matter. The nature of man to a naturalist is that we are just matter. You start to see why your neighbor may have, who has this worldview, feels differently about moral and ethical issues than you do. Because if you start with the presupposition that man is simply matter and is just part of the cosmos, then you deal with issues of life and death and ethics differently. Number five, what is the basis of ethics and morality? Well, they're impacted by this idea that man is matter. Ethics is related only to man, the naturalist would say. Ethics is related only to man. Since there is essentially and practically no God in this philosophy, man is given the role of the default value giver. You are the value giver in the, for the cosmos. You've just been given a promotion. Before man, a naturalist would say, there were no ethics because there was no consciousness, no sense of right and wrong, no self-determination. It was only when man came on the scene through evolution that there were ethics. There is no transcendence about morality, the naturalist would say. It is simply man's following out the pattern that has been embedded in him as a creature. It has no origin beyond man, man alone. You see, when man came on the scene, ethics and morality then began. It wasn't there before. The Humanist Manifesto 2 once again says this, Moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics stems from human need and interest. Ethics is autonomous and situational needing no theological or ideological sanction. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our future. This is where we get the idea of situational ethics. That's what's good for you in this moment of time. Then that is what's good. That's where our ethics come from. Our morals come from the fact that we have a human need for them or an interest in them. Ethics is simply, it's up to you. It's autonomous. It is situational. No need for theology or ideology. 
And human life only has meaning because we create our own future. Values are received through intuition or a feeling of rightness or from authority or from convention to our culture. The problem, though, is that values we see are not necessarily universal if we leave it up to individuals or individual cultures. So human survival simply becomes the survival of the fittest, whose ever value rises to the top, whose ever ethic rises to the top, or morality rises to the top, wins. That's where values and ethics come from to a naturalist. Question six, what happens after we die? Well, surprise, surprise, a naturalist would say there is no life beyond the grave. Nothing. Death is merely the extinction of personality and individualism. So the next funeral you go to, just realize that all you're doing is having a ceremony saying goodbye to the extinction of personality and individualism. See, a naturalist would say when matter which goes to make up a man is disorganized at death, then the man simply disappears. See, death to a naturalist is nothing more than the disorganization of matter. Ernest Nagel, an early 20th century philosopher, said this, and listen carefully because I think this sentence is at the heart of naturalism. Human destiny your life, is an episode between two oblivions. Which means here's your life, everybody. You don't know where this all began. You don't know where it'll end. It's just, a, just two oblivions. And your life is a 30-minute sitcom in the middle. What happens after we die? Well, it doesn't really matter. Because we are an episode between two oblivions. And when we physically die, we are simply disorganizing matter. Question seven, what is the meaning of history? Let me show you this simple graphic. History is a linear system of events linked by cause and effect. But it has no overarching purpose. The line that says natural history, a naturalist would say there's no overarching purpose to this. Within this philosophy, the origin of man, you see a beginning. It's actually held to be more certain than the origin of the universe itself. Now, a naturalist would say that the origin of man is evolution, but they would say, well, that's where it began was with evolution. Unlike natural history, a naturalist would say we don't know where that began. While the theist or the person who believes in a God would say that God controls this history, a naturalist would say that the process is on its own. So man came into the stream of natural history and thus human history began. Man showed up, entered into natural history. So human history began. They would say that man makes a difference, but as in evolution, there is no inherent goal. Have you ever thought about that? Evolution has no goal. You came, 
You lived, you disorganized, and it's over. So man makes a difference, but, as in evolution, which has no inherent goal, history also has no inherent goal. History is simply what man, in human history, makes of it. History as we know it will last only as long as conscious man lasts. See, the only history we know, correct, is human history. And it will last only until conscious man lasts. When man is gone, human history will disappear. That's the meaning of history. Again, it doesn't have really any goal. We don't really know. We just know that while we're here, we can impact it. But then, when we're gone, it doesn't really matter that we impacted it. And question eight, how can we know that we know? Well, this question brings up really the major quirks of naturalism. Because if this is making any sense to you and hasn't got, isn't like rolling around in your head like marbles, you realize that this is the question a naturalist cannot answer. How do we know that we know? Because essentially we can only know because we determine that we can. There's something shaky about that. See, a naturalist would say, well, the only way we know what we know is that we've determined what it is we know. And if you think about it, we've determined that we can know. Is there enough reason, I would ask, is there enough reason for man to even consider himself valuable within naturalism? If indeed we are just this little blip in history, this episode between two oblivions, then I don't know that there's a lot of reason we would even consider mankind valuable. If man is chance, if this just happens through the chance of evolution, then is there a worthiness to man? Is, is, do you have any worth if you started by chance anyway? And if man's origin is iffy, can he trust his own capacity to know? Can we trust our own thoughts to even know ourselves or our own value? See, it starts winding out of control. I had somebody after the first celebration come up and say, this is exactly what I was taught in college. This is exactly what I was taught. And he said, after college, it took me three years to figure out that the way I was leading my life as a, essentially a naturalist wasn't working. That it wasn't true. I wasn't living in the truth of who I was. And when I realized that God created me with a purpose, and that purpose was to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, then I found real life and real truth. Well, that's the answers of naturalism to those questions. You can take it or leave it. I hope you go one way versus the other. But remember this. The person who lives next door to you thinks this way. The teachers at universities and colleges think this way. That when you see a scientific report in the paper, it has been done from this point of view. You have to understand that 
that's all impacting the way that people live their life. You say, why does my neighbor think this way? Or why do they do this? Or why do they have this belief? Or why is this their ethical stand on issue A, B, or C? It's because they have this worldview. Remember, however we see things then impacts the way we behave. What we believe impacts the way we behave. Well, I want to look at a passage in Scripture where the disciples were challenged with what they believed, then I would say that it didn't necessarily behave that way. Matthew 14, I would give it this title, The Tale of Christian or Theistic Naturalists. Theistic meaning they believed in God, Christian, that they believed in Jesus, but that they were acting like naturalists. Starting in verse 22, the story goes this way. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now normally here at New Life, we would take a passage like this and we would take it word for word, sentence by sentence, discover exactly what's there. I want to do it a little differently this morning. I have four thoughts that I just want to put out there for your consideration. Number one, often we are theoretical theists, but practical naturalists. That theoretically we believe in God. We believe in a God of the supernatural and a God of miracles. But we are practical naturalists. We live as though the natural is all there is and that the supernatural does not exist as though God does not impact our lives. Jesus is with us just like he was with the disciples. Think about it. Jesus was with them, wasn't he? he they had just seen him. And he said, get in the boat, go across, I'll meet you there. Now, certainly he met them in a slightly different way than they had anticipated and at a slightly different point in the journey than they anticipated, but they had just seen him. And yet, that wasn't their first thought, was it? 
You see, we do this. Jesus is with us, but we focus on the storm. Now, lest we judge the disciples too harshly, I want us to do this. Replace the storm on the sea with your own storm or trial or sin or struggle and ask yourself this. Do I believe in the power of the storm or the power of my Savior? We're theoretical theists, but practical naturalists. When the storms of life become our focus, when we get caught up in them and wonder, where is God? He's right there. See, the disciples saw him, and yet they were worried about the storm. Now, as a side note, there are they did have some thought of the supernatural, which I find odd. They were terrified, it said, and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, how in the world did they get there? You see, rather than believe in Jesus, who they'd just seen, the one who they'd just seen perform miracles, where did they go? Apparently, they'd been watching too much TLC. That's all i got to say. <laughs> and they suddenly thought, it's a ghost. Really? But we do that too. Jesus is right there. Right there in the midst of our storms. And we come up with every other reason of what it may be. So are we theoretical theists but practical naturalists? My second thought. It appears to me that we behave in a manner that seems to say that we believe that Christianity is about me and not he. I mean, I've been around church people a long, long time. And I would say that I have seen many, many, many of us who behave in a manner that seems to say that we believe Christianity is about me and not about Jesus. I think actually it's a theology that we've learned in church. And in many churches today in the Western world, this is what's being taught, and it's not in the Bible. The focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. That's what's being taught. The Christian faith is the life of the Christian. And so it takes us to these questions How am I doing? Am I getting what I need? Is God supplying my needs? Is God supplying my wants? Why isn't God coming through for me? Why am I suffering? Doesn't God see what's going on? Am I living my best life now? That is not what the Bible teaches. That is a theology of me. And the last thing I heard of that was similar to that philosophy was naturalism. It's all about me. And what I make of my life and how all of the cosmos impacts me because I just got to figure it out as this machine, the highest animal in the universe. Tully and Chavigian, the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian in Florida, said this, the truest measure, the truest measure of Christian growth 
is when we stop spiritually rationalizing the reason we are taking our eyes off of Jesus and are focusing on ourselves. Let me say that again. The truest measure of Christian growth is when we stop spiritually rationalizing the reason we are taking our eyes off Jesus and focusing on ourselves. What he's saying is we will grow as believers when we get our eyes on Jesus instead of us. The focus of the Bible, let me remind you, is not about the work of the redeemed. It is about the work of the redeemer. But we behave in a manner that says, my Christian life, Christianity is all about me. What do the disciples need to do in that moment? Jesus is here. We're cool. Yeah, the wind is blowing. The waves are crashing into the boat, but Jesus is here. Now, Peter at least, see, he gets the bad rap in this story. And he's the only one that even gave this a shot. Although he starts out a little, if it's you, come on. So, but if you're a ghost, don't call me. Okay. It, <laughs> if it's you, then tell me to come. Okay, so Jesus says what? Well, okay, come on. So what did Peter do? Got out of the boat. Good job. Walk on the water. Then what happened? Oh, wait a minute. The naturalist in him set in and he began to sink. Because why? Got his eyes off Jesus and on, on himself. I'm walking on water. Okay. Eyes off Jesus. The focus of the Bible is the work of that redeemer Jesus and not the redeemed. Third thought. I know these are random. Third thought. This is not a story about getting Jesus in your boat. This is not about, here's my plans, God. Here's what I think I'm going to do. Here's, what I, here's my life. I've got it all planned out. Now come and bless it. This is not a story of getting Jesus in your boat. Several reasons I can say that. One, this boat didn't belong to any of them. They borrowed it. And I think this is personal. This is purposeful. It's not about your boat. It's about the Jesus of the supernatural versus the natural storm. It is about your response to Jesus and the storm. It's about which you look to. Do, you look at, do we look at the storm in our life or do we look to Jesus? Do we look at ourselves and what we're going through as the redeemed? Do we look to Jesus the redeemer? Do we look to the God of the supernatural and the miraculous or do we look at the natural and say we're going down? See, this is a story about sin. Because to look at anyone except Jesus is sin. Martin Luther said, sin is man turned in on himself. Have you ever done this? Man turned in on himself. Oh my, this is, this is what I'm going through. This is how I'm hurting. This is what I'm feeling. This is what's happening. I don't know where God is. Where is God? Why isn't he paying attention to me? Why isn't this going better? Why is this even happening? Why is he allowing this to happen in my life? And we turn in on ourselves. I heard a very interesting definition of sanctification, which often has a big, long definition. You know, there's justification at that point we come to Christ. Then there's sanctification, our growth. It was defined this week in something I was listening to. It said, sanctification is forgetting about yourself. 
Am I living a sanctified, growing life? Well, are you forgetting about yourself? Who's at the center of your cosmos? I think that's pretty biblical. John 3.30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Hebrews 12.1-3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this is about looking to Jesus. The founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross, despised the shame, And the Father said, now come and sit at the right hand of the throne of God. In verse 33 of Matthew 14, it says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are who? The Son of God. This is to be the response of our life. To worship and acknowledge his power. Not ourselves. I don't know about you, but I am not a good God. And neither are you. In naturalism, if you think about it, there actually is a God. It's it's you. You just got to make sure your episode stuck there between the two oblivions is as centered on you as it can possibly be. But we are to worship and acknowledge the power of the living Christ, the one who walks on water in the midst of the storm. Thought number four. As Christ followers, we must live far beyond the hold of the physical and the natural. And we must do that because our salvation was obtained and attested to through God's witness that he proved through miracles. See, we have to live far beyond the physical and the natural because even our salvation is a miracle. It is the greatest of all miracles. It is the epitome of the supernatural. Hebrews 2, 3-5 through 5 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according, distributed according to his will. Luke 4, 17 through 19 says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus, who was in the temple. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set those at liberty, those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you know Jesus today, if you're walking with him, if you call yourself a Christ follower, then you have 
lived a life not natural, but supernatural. You see, the miracle of the God of the universe stepping into it, sending his son to die for you so that you could know him and that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, could live inside you. That is miraculous. That is supernatural, not natural. That's the basis of our entire Christian walk is within the supernatural. And yet, what do we do? We look at ourselves and we turn inward and we worry about the storm and we get caught up in how we're going to fix our sin issue and what we're going to do about our struggle rather than look to Jesus, the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith who entered this world miraculously after he created it miraculously and enters into lives miraculously and works through us miraculously. The gospel is a miracle that a holy God would give salvation to a creation that had turned from him and rejected him. It is a miracle that God allows you to see your sin and understand your desperate need for a Savior. It is a miracle that God, our Father, sent the Son to pay the penalty for our sin that we should have paid. It is a miracle that today, today, in this moment, that you are sensing something with inside of you calling you to accept his call, to come to him and know him and give your life completely to him and walk in his grace. It is a miracle that any of us in this room ever sensed that call and said yes. And in this moment, there are others being called to come home, to step out of the natural into the supernatural, and know Jesus. It is also a miracle that the gospel goes further than that and calls each of us to holy living. Because in and of ourselves, we cannot live holy lives. And yet, the Spirit in us can. And it calls us to selflessness and sacrifice. It calls us to faith and to trust you see, our worldview as Bible-believing Christians is that we live a life of faith. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He calls us into a life where when we pray, we see the supernatural take place. That when we trust in God, miracles do indeed happen. That when others come and pray for us, our prayer partners, or at the end of our celebrations, our prayer partners pray for people, or you're praying for someone in a brother's keeper time, it is the miraculous that steps in. Why do people weep when they are prayed for? Because we live in the miraculous and the supernatural. And that person is sensing the Spirit. You can blame it on six other things, but that is not what it is. It is the Holy Spirit working in that moment. 
Why, as I have prayed for people, do they begin to shake? Why, have, as I have prayed for people around the world, do they fall? Not because I push, not because something is happening through me, but because the Holy Spirit is working on them in the miraculous and in the supernatural why can I sit in my office and be praying for someone and within a matter of 15 minutes the person is soaked with sweat, dripping in a 72 degree room and when they look up they say, God has told me that this has been a cleansing from the past and I can move forward. That is the miraculous and the supernatural. Why is it that in Costa Rica we pray for young guys in the midst of the prayer, they look up and they say, there is a darkness blocking me from coming to Jesus. What is that about? That is about the supernatural and the miraculous. And why does that block break down as we continue to pray against the enemy? Because we do not live in a natural world. We do not function in a natural world. We function within the miraculous and the supernatural. Why do we have prayer partners? Because we believe in the supernatural. We believe that the God of the universe enters into our lives and works in them. We do not believe in a God even that created and then left. But a God who came in the person of Jesus Christ and died for us. That God who is calling you now home. You are in the midst of the supernatural if you are sensing that at this time. Like some came at the first celebration, giving their lives completely to Christ. What was going on? It was a moment of the supernatural. It was a moment of the miraculous in calling his children home. In your worship folder today is this little pamphlet about our prayer partner ministry. And it says on the front, this is a ministry that desires to connect you with the power of the Holy Spirit. You wonder what's going on up here at the end of celebrations? You wonder whether you should pray with those? The answer is yes, you should. Because these are people who believe that God empowers and heals and comforts and delivers and guides and transforms those who seek him. This is a normal expression of worship, is asking God to intervene, not because we are focused on ourselves, but because we want what he wants. We want him to be the focus of our situation and our life and our struggle and our sin and our issue and our family junk. That's why we pray for one another. The Prayer Partners is a ministry that rejects naturalism and trusts fully in the supernatural. As we finish, I just have a couple questions for us. Where are you on your spiritual journey? Maybe today you are sensing the call of Jesus to come to Him and give your life fully to Him. And I would tell you here in a moment when we stand to sing and worship that these prayer partners will be on either side. I'd encourage you to step out. Yes, as hard as it is to step out and come to them and tell them, I want to know Jesus. I sense him calling me home. Another question 
What does your prayer life and your dependence on prayer say about your worldview? What does it say about your worldview? That you're all about you? That you can figure it out, you can do it? Or that you have a dependency upon God? What does your response to trouble in life say about your worldview? Do you look to, at the storm or the Savior? Do you get stuck on me or he? What do your actions and attitudes in conflict say about your worldview? What does your budget and your wallet and your giving say about your worldview? Do you trust the one that said, give him the first fruits? Give him out of your abundance? Or do you say, oh, these numbers aren't adding up? What does your walk, your daily walk, say about your worldview? And I would challenge you, if God is speaking to you, that there's a piece of your worldview that gets off into naturalism, to come and pray with a prayer partner and have them walk you through connecting with the Holy Spirit and hear from God and cement it in your mind. Are we naturalists? Practically? That's the challenge. Let's pray. If you're going to be baptized, you can head back at this time. God, would you work in this moment? In these minutes to come, I'd ask that your Holy Spirit would set in on this place. God, we believe that you do that. That as we have gathered here today, that you desire to work in the supernatural. We have come to worship a God of miracles. And so we ask for those today. As we worship, as you touch us, as people come to be prayed with, God, as they are connected with the power of your spirit in their life, God, be glorified in these moments. In Christ's name.